Okay, so are you uh, turned to Hebrews chapter 6 tonight, and we're going to continue on in the chapter. And uh, before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Lord, we do ask for your blessing. Thank you, God, for uh, just a wonderful opportunity that we have to be in your word together. Lord, the word of God is, is uh, powerful. We know it, it's living and active. Lord, and uh, these things are written for our admonition and, Lord, for our training, for our instruction in righteousness, for correction, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, Lord. So open our hearts to what your spirit would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So in our last study in Hebrews 6, Greg pointed out the historical context and that these verses were originally written to Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism, back to the rituals, back to the ceremonial law, back to the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices, all of which were fulfilled in Jesus Christ who died once for all who has become the mediator of a new covenant. So, and as we know, his death on the cross has made the righteousness that comes by faith available to all who believe. And this is one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. Over and over, he explains that all of those things of the old covenant have come to an end. They were a foreshadowing of the Messiah who has now come. They were a foreshadowing of Jesus and all that he fulfilled as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we'll get into more detail about that later, but I'd like to have you flip forward. To, uh, keep your finger in chapter 6. Flip forward to chapter 9 just for a moment. I just wanted to look at an, at an example of how the old covenant has been fulfilled in the new and why the book of Hebrews was written. Just read with me Hebrews 9 starting at verse 11. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So again, the old was a foreshadowing of all that Jesus Christ would accomplish creating a new and living way so that salvation comes by grace through faith. Now, back in chapter 6, before we launch forward into the next section, I'd like to take one more look backward at verses 4 through 8 because I believe there's an application here for us today. First of all, I agree with those who conclude that these verses were written to believers, and that he is not talking about losing your salvation. We discussed this in our last study. I also believe that he is giving a warning for all Christians to take heed. And as we learned last week, God must grant repentance. There is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart to bring conviction of sin, 
and the knowledge of the truth so that the Christian, like the prodigal son, will come to his senses and acknowledge the truth, receive forgiveness, and return to fellowship with his father. But the sovereignty of God must always be in cooperation with the free will of man. As it is with salvation, I believe so it is with repentance. God must choose, but man also must make a choice. In other words, we have a responsibility to change our mind, to change the direction of our life, to turn from a path of ungodliness and from the love of this world and from selfish ambition and repent towards God. Our responsibility is addressed over and over in the scriptures where the command is given to repent. And when we do, there is the wonderful promise that I love in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'd like to offer an application from Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. First, let's read it once again, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So again, I agree that this is written to born-again believers. Authentic Christians are the only ones who have been enlightened and have tasted and have, are partakers of the Holy Spirit. But the wording in verse 6 is what I'd like to comment on for just a few moments. It can be helpful, helpful with difficult passages to look at the grammar and the words that are used in the original language, especially with the verbs. In this case, I found it very significant that in the Greek, the words crucify and the word put in verse 6 are present participles. Do we have any grammar geeks here? Okay, who knows what that is? I had to, I had to Google that. I don't even know what a participle is. But they're present participles. So verse 6 should read, if when they fall alongside, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance while they are crucifying again for themselves the Son of God and while they are putting him to open shame. So it's not saying that these could not ever be brought to repentance, but only while they are putting Jesus to open shame. It's only while their conduct continues to disgrace Christ. God may be granting repentance, but they are not yet willing to repent, and their fellowship with God cannot be restored and renewed while they are disgracing Christ. Now, so what does this look like? Another question I, that came to my mind is, how did the enemies of Christ treat him? Those who wanted Jesus dead and gone, how did, or what did they do and what did they say? How did they treat Jesus? We know that they said away with him, crucify him. They were, glad that, they were glad that he was put to open shame. They said among themselves openly, he saved others. Let him save himself. It says in the Gospels, they hurled their insults at him. It says they blasphemed, they reviled, and they mocked him. In unbelief, they rejected him. So here's what I believe is an application for you and I, and here is, here is a warning in this chapter of Hebrews. The enemies of Christ, the enemies of Christianity, and those who oppose us, those who promote ungodliness and who deny the truth of the gospel, they are looking for opportunity to blaspheme. They look for opportunity to point 
to Christians who have fallen away so they can say it's, it's a joke. They're no different than anybody else. Their faith is it's just a crutch that they lean on. All this talk about Jesus is Lord. They look for those opportunities. There are those in the world today who look for the, the opportunity to express their hatred and rejection of Jesus Christ. And when Christians fall away and their behavior becomes a reproach on the name of Christ, it gives his enemies the occasion to blaspheme. It happened when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Samuel the prophet said to David, By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. This is why I believe we are instructed over and over in the scriptures to maintain our godly conduct, even while the world around us grows more and more perverse. Read through Titus 2 if you haven't lately. Read through 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul wrote to Timothy to teach the Christians to maintain godly conduct so the word of God may not be blasphemed. He said to teach them to have sound speech that cannot be con condemned, that the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And he, he said, while they're on the job, there should be no pilfering, but show all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. Our conduct should make the message of the gospel attractive to those who are watching our lives. Peter said, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that, they, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So it's when our conduct dishonors the Lord and when we behave like the ungodly, this is when we are again crucifying the Son of God by putting Jesus to open shame. We can give great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. It happens when we fall away from walking with the Lord. It happens when we stop seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. David went a whole year without repenting unwilling to confess his sin. We too are warned not to fall away and give the enemies of the Lord a reason to blaspheme. He goes on to say, if anyone maintains this mindset and his ungodly conduct, he will not be fruitful for the kingdom of God. I believe this is the application that fits the context as, you, as you, we read on in verses 7 and 8. It says, for the earth which drinks in the rain and often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So it is those who are walking with the Lord, those who are growing, those who are serving and bearing fruit, it says their lives will receive blessing from God. But, when there, but then there are those who are not fruitful. Their works are compared to thorns and briars, it is rejected by God and near to being cursed. In the end, that which is done by them will not receive a reward, but will be burned up. As it says in 1 Corinthians 3, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So what is an example of putting Jesus to open shame? I've talked with different people over the years, Christians, who tell a similar 
story or share a similar experience that they have at their place of work. And this is how it often goes. Um, they, they tell me how at the workplace it, it eventually becomes known that they are Christian. There's evidence to convict them. <laughs> and they say things like, you know, everything was going great. I had an opportunity to share with somebody. I had somebody ask me to pray for them. I had somebody else ask if we could start a Bible study during our lunch break. I was able to invite somebody to church. And then one day, um, the manager, there's usually, a, there's often a manager or a supervisor or a boss who doesn't like Christians. And they tell me how one day they got passed up for a promotion. And it was given to the, the, the manager's drinking buddy instead. And they would say, it made me so mad. I just wanted to go into his office and give him a piece of my mind. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about just up and quitting without notice. That'll teach him a lesson. I could just slack off if my hard work isn't, isn't paying off. You know, and they, they, this, this reaction starts to come out. And I, I'm, I'm listening, and I, uh, eventually I say, now hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. Think about what you're saying. Think about what this would lead to if you do not continue to honor the Lord. But react like everyone else in, in the world. You will only give the enemies of Christ a reason to blaspheme. Listen to 1 Peter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, though you, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. How important it is to maintain godly conduct in the face of persecution or in the face of mistreatment and to follow Christ's example, who opened not his mouth. In 1 Peter 2, it says, Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And what a testimony it can be. What a testimony it is. When we pray for our enemies and we seek to overcome evil with good, that we adorn the gospel of God in all things. And then we continue to work hard. We continue to be faithful. We continue to be loyal in spite of mistreatment. This speaks volumes to those who are observing our lives. And it will glorify God. And it will be a testimony of the transformation, the genuine transformation that has taken place in your heart because you know the Lord. And knowing people are watching, a perspective I, I love to try to keep is that God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Amen? Now notice what he says in verse 9. Immediately after this warning not to fall away, he says, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So what he's saying is, although we just explained a very serious condition of falling away, we are confident of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany those who are walking with the Lord. 
Things that accompany those who are persevering in the faith, who are growing and making spiritual progress and bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. I think it's important to remember how this chapter started. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 6 for a moment. Notice how, what this is all about. He says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. As we discussed in our previous study, this word perfection means completion. Paul wrote to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What he's referring to is spiritual growth that leads to maturity and leads to completeness. And what is the evidence of those who are growing and making spiritual progress? That's what I think he's giving us in verse 10. Notice it says, the work and the labor of love, which you have shown toward his, toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. It's the opposite of falling away or falling alongside. It's the opposite of being out of fellowship with Jesus or abiding in him. It's the opposite of falling away, which can lead to un ungodly conduct and putting Jesus to an open shame and giving his enemies occasion to blaspheme. It's spiritual progress and growth that leads to fruitful service and a labor of love. It leads to serving one another, as he says, because of our love for the Lord and our desire to please him and to honor him and to bring him glory. Because that's our motivation, we love one another. Amen? And that's fulfilling, fulfilling the command of Christ, to love one another. Now, it's interesting that he emphasizes that God is not unjust to forget. So don't ever let the enemy rip you off with his lies, that your service and your hard work and your ministry to the body of Christ doesn't matter, or that God doesn't see, or that God no longer cares, or that he's left you alone by yourself, or that he will forget to reward you. God sees it all, amen? He sees it all. And he will never leave you or forsake you. And he continues his good work within you. He says his grace is sufficient, sufficient for all that he's called you to do. And as you abide in him, you will bear much fruit. So when the battle comes, we should not lose heart because God is not unjust to forget our, our, our fruitful service, our labor of love. So this, this exhortation comes in the following verses, verse 11 and 12. He says, And we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish or imitate those who through, excuse me, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now, anytime we read the word diligence, we know that he's speaking to our responsibility, right? Diligence, the definition is a persistent, hard-working effort that involves carefulness, attentiveness, and thoroughness. Once again, a persistent, hard-working effort that involves carefulness, attentiveness, and thoroughness. Now how, is that, now, how is that applied to our spiritual progress? 
I would say it's the difference between a man who, when it happens across his mind, he opens his Bible into the wind, and he allows God to turn the pages. And then he reads his verse for the day and goes on. It's a difference between something like that and the man who carefully has thought out a strategy, a strategy that he is sure to read the whole counsel of God, who diligently is studying the scriptures, meditating on them, with an intention of acting in faith, obeying and applying the word of God to his life. That's diligence. Diligence is the difference between the man who prays when he's expected to pray, and he prays uh, what he's expected to pray and when he's expected to pray, and that's what he prays. As opposed to the man who makes time regularly, regularly to get alone with God and commune with him. The man who prays and worships the Lord. He prays to worship. He prays to confess. He prays to make his requests known. And he prays to intercede for his loved ones and his neighbors. Diligent discipleship results in spiritual, spiritual progress and fruitful service. But when we have failed to apply diligence, he says we become sluggish. As it says in verse 12, it means we can become dull. We can become slow to learn. Because unless we're moving forward with the Lord unless we're growing and bearing fruit, then we're sliding backwards and we become sluggish and we become dull of hearing and dull of learning. So when it comes to our spiritual progress, there must be diligence. While it is true there are some things only God can do, it is also true that there are some things you and I must do. This is a short excerpt from a book called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. I thought this was great. He said, a farmer plows his field, sows the seed, fertilizes and cultivates, all the while knowing that in the final analysis, he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce the rain, and the sunshine for growing and harvesting the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet the farmer knows that unless he, is diligent, unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow, to fertilize, to cultivate, he cannot expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he is in partnership with God, and he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his responsibilities. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. We can say that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the Christian. We will not make spiritual progress without God working within us and within our lives, but no one will attain it without effort on his own part. And what will accompany those who are diligent to the end? Who will those who will continue in spiritual progress, who keep themselves on a path of growth and maturity, not allowing themselves to become sluggish. Notice what he says in verse 11. 
He speaks there of a full assurance of hope. It's a blessed assurance that we will receive that for which we hope, that for which God has promised. Let me read that again. It's the blessed assurance that we will receive that for which we hope, that which God has promised. He says that, that which others have received, who, as it says, through faith and patience inherit, inherited the promise. It's interesting that the book ends with the promise of Jesus, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. How full is your assurance of hope tonight? Do you sometimes wonder how full it could be? How full is your joy in the Lord? The Bible speaks of fullness. How full is your love in the Spirit? Hebrews 10.22 says we can come to God with a full assurance of faith. How full is your assurance tonight? I want the fullness. Amen? We want the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We want the fullness of what God wants to give to us. But it will only come through a diligent effort to maintain spiritual progress. It's our diligence in the process of spiritual growth and maturity that results in a greater and greater fullness by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity, again, that we have to be in your word. And the exhortation, Lord, that we have for diligence in our walk with you, Lord. For diligence in our spiritual progress. Lord, I so appreciate that illustration with the farmer. There are things, God, we know that only you can do by the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we know that there are things that you will not do, that we should do, that we must do, that we are responsible for, for that diligence. Lord, and we want to make spiritual progress. Lord, we want our service to be fruitful. Lord, we want to bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. What a joy and an honor, Lord, to be a workman who is unashamed. Yes. To be a workman who is thoroughly equipped and complete, ready for every good work. Lord, we know it's, a, it's only due to a diligence in your word and a diligence in prayer yes. and a diligence in fellowship, Lord, in, in exercising ourselves toward godliness. Yes. Lord, so help us. Help us, Lord, with that conviction in our lives. In a world with so many distractions, so many things vying for our attention. Yes. Lord, we want to be those who truly seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. So thank you again for your word tonight. Yes. Bless it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.